Welcome. Um, can I ask our ushers to come forward here? Uh, we're going to take our normal tithes and offering for the evening. I know many of you have come prepared to give. And um, deeply grateful uh, for your commitment to impact um, our community and the, the broader world with that. We've already prayed, so ushers, you go ahead and pass those. Let me mention two things real quickly. If I can, When you walked in, if you picked up a bulletin, um, two things on there. The first is you probably also got a second uh, flyer or, or handout here. I don't know how many of you remember a few weeks ago we were talking about a conference that we were going to have called Redeeming Sexuality. Uh, Dan Allender is, is this great um, PhD psychology author, speaker, professor. Um, he, we're bringing him in town. He's going to be out at our Windsor campus, Timberline Windsor, and he's going to be speaking there. And I thought it would just be really kind of a cool connection because in this series, we've been looking at different aspects of what it means to be human, and one of those is relationship. And a, and a component of that is, is this idea of our sexuality, maleness and femaleness, and, and how that all looks. And Allender has a real gift and a calling and a ministry toward this idea of looking at, okay, how do we think biblically about our sexuality, specifically the idea of redeeming relationships and sexuality. So great opportunity. Uh, I would encourage you to take a look at that if that fits into your schedule. And then the last thing is um, next week, we, uh, as, as Dustin mentioned a second ago, this is our last uh, week in our series, Being Human. And um, next week, we're going we're gonna to pick up on something a little different, uh, and our, our format will be a little bit different as well. We're going to spend the evening um, looking at, uh, and, and this is on the back of your, uh, your handout there, but Christian persecution in the Middle East. Um, a good friend of mine, Dr. Jim Lindsay, who's a professor at CSU, teaches in the Middle Eastern Studies, is, is going to be talking to us about the, the challenges that really the birthplace of the church, so many places in the Middle East, and, and where the first centers and hubs of Christianity were places like Egypt and, and Rome and Syria and Antioch and Jerusalem, uh, Christianity there is almost uh, on the extinction. It's growing uh, fervishly in other places, but in the Middle East, if you watch the news, you know the persecution that our brothers and sisters are going through. So what we thought we would do is just have an evening where, where Jim, um, who's a guy that, man, anytime I have a, a question on like Old Testament Middle East studies, um, I always run to Jim because he's just a bright guy and has a deep heart for the Lord. He's going to take like 20 minutes and, and, and kind of uh, frame for us the reality of what's going on, and then just allow us to like riddle him with questions, which is kind of fun when you have a professor in the room. So we'll have some microphones set up, and as you have questions about some of those dynamics going on in the Middle East, uh, bring those questions here, because we're going to have a chance to ask him that, and then just spend a little bit of time at the end in worship, in some concerted uh, prayer time for our, our, our fellow believers who are in that place, and then take communion together, which is kind of a cool symbol. Because the idea of communion, that's part of our community as well. And so we want to do that in the context of prayer. So that'll be next week. Um, we've been looking at here over the past five weeks, and then like I said, tonight we'll kind of wrap this up, looking at this idea of, of uh, from a biblical perspective, wh what does it mean to be, to be uh, human, to be us? And, and we've seen kind of these, these two opposite sides. Let me, let me write a couple of these ideas that, that we've been looking at up here on our board. Um, there's what we could call the, 
there's, there's the greatness of humanity, this idea of the, the image of God, you might say the glory, the beauty, but, but then there's this other kind of polar opposite experience of, of the human heart that is, yeah, they're having a lot more fun than we are. Don't leave, because that sounds like more fun, but um, this is the misery. This is, this is, the, this is our brokenness. This is our sinfulness. This, this is the wickedness of the human heart. And um, we've seen that really every, uh, every religion, every philosophy, every worldview is, is going to try to explain what does it mean to be human. And I would suggest that, that everyone is going to tend to um, emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. Other. And, and so they're going to try to make sense of what it means to be human, but, but I, I'm going to suggest that the thesis that the Bible has, that only this idea that we're looking at here, that we'll talk about a little more in a minute, um, gives us an accurate picture. So insofar as it's unbalanced, it's going to present me with an untrue version of, of how I live, of what it means to be in relationship with others and work and, and, and be creative and, and think and interact with my world. Let me, let me give you two examples of what I mean by, by how worldviews or perspectives, just from our popular culture, how they, they lean toward one side or the other. Um, the New York Times, back in 2005, had an article about a, a new exhibit going on at the London Zoo. And what, what was so interesting and, and, and kind of controversial, people were talking about it, seemed real exciting, was this exhibit, they said, no, normally visitors come and you talk to the animals, this time they're going to talk back to you, they said. And let me just kind of read some of this language from the, the uh, Times article. It said, caged and barely clothed in a rocky enclosure, eight British men and women were on display beginning Friday behind this sign reading, warning, humans in their natural environment. The inhabitants of the, of the human zoo exhibit sunned themselves on a large rock wearing fig leaves pinned to bathing suits. Some played with hula hoops, some waved. A sign uh, informed visitors about the species' diet, habitat, worldwide distribution, and the threats to its survival. On Friday, visitors pointed and laughed, and several children asked why people were in there. And this is interesting. The spokeswoman of the zoo... Uh, of the London Zoo, Polly Wills said that question, why are they in this? She said, that is exactly the question the zoo wanted to answer. Now, this is the question we're asking here. What does it mean to be human? Okay, they're saying, we want to address that issue. She went on to say, uh, seeing people in a different environment among other animals, Miss Wills said, teaches members of the public that the human is just another primate. One of the participants, this, uh, he was a chemist, this is one of the guys who was in the exhibit. His name was Tom Mahoney. He was 26 years old. He said, quote, you know, a lot of people think humans are above other animals. When they see humans as animals here, it kind of reminds us that we're not that special. Okay? So question, which one of these two is that philosophy, that worldview leaning toward? Yeah. How much image of God is there? None. It's... In the words of Tom, we're not that special. It's, it speaks to the, to the bruteness, the, the debased nature, the, the animalistic nature of humans. 
as one person has spoken of that saying that nature is red, meaning bloody, red in tooth and claw. And we're just part of that. Nature is violent, it's, it's animalistic, it's survival of the fittest, and we are simply that, but we're not special. Okay? So that worldview that, that we could call naturalism or materialism is going to emphasize that, but it's going to have nothing to say of the specialness, the glory of humanity. Let me give you kind of a, another one and kind of tell me where you see that. This one fit up here. Um, Deepak Chopra is a name that probably many of you will know if you watch Oprah or, or go to the self-help section or various different places. You'll find that this Eastern man who, who has come here to the U.S. and Deepak Chopra is, is kind of this guru on positive thinking, how to live life, answering questions like what does it mean to be human. Listen to how he answers the same question that the zoo is attempting to answer. Deepak Chopra wrote, in reality, we are divinity in disguise, and the gods and goddesses in embryo that are contained within us seek to be fully materialized. True success, he says, is therefore the experience of the miraculous. It is the unfolding of the divinity within us. Which one does that go toward? Yeah, it's glory. It's, it's that angelic side of humanity. Not just the image of God, but in Chopra's words, the Godhood, right? The Godness. We are gods ourselves. So it speaks to this, but it ends up denying the evil. It ends up denying the misery, or at least saying, well, it's just ignorance. Just realize that you are God. And that's, that's where the emphasis lies. Now, the, the, the thesis of this whole six weeks that we're spending together is that only the biblical view, only if you take this biblical view of what it means to be human, are you gonna find any sort of meaningful answer. And not just an academic answer, I'm talking about as you live your life experientially, existentially, it's the only satisfactory answer. That'll make sense of all of your experiences, both on this side and on that side of how you live, how you experience others in your life. So for instance, um, our, our, our glory, our greatness, listen to what the Bible says. Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, we read this. The psalmist says, you have made them, he's speaking of humanity, you have made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hand. You put everything under their feet. This is the greatness. This is the beauty, the honor. We, we are the crown of God's creation. He's, he's like flabbergasted by this. God, you made the distant stars in this expanding universe, and yet this tiny little seemingly insignificant dot in the midst of all this almost limitless space, you put image bearers of you, and he's just going, what are we that you care so much about us? Deep beauty. And yet also, Jeremiah 17, 9 Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart, the heart is deceitfully wicked, beyond cure, and then he says, who can know it? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Now, this is speaking of not just abstract, he's talking about your heart, he's talking about my heart. The human heart is deceitfully wicked, beyond cure, who can even understand it? 
And so, and so we've been looking at this idea every week of saying, this is like a, this is like a masterpiece. This is beautiful, right? It's glory. It's something that's awesome. And yet, as, as we've seen the vandalism that has taken place to it, there's this sense of like, oh, man, that's awful. I mean, we hate to, a $2,900 piece of art that, that's just brutally destroyed. And so each week, we looked at how morality, we are, we, we are mortal creatures, and yet we, we turn toward injustice we exploit others. We are, we are creative beings. We're beings made, made to have stewardship of God's world. And, and yet we so quickly again go to, go to exploitation or laziness, giving up. We're rational creatures. We have this thing called a mind that we can think. We can dream up great ideas. And yet how quickly those ideas turn to self-justification, self-rationalization, rationalizing what we do, even self-deception. And each one of these is this beautiful picture of the glory of God. And yet in, it, it's, it's broken beauty is what it is. And we look at it and we're in awe and we go, man, that's so awesome. And at the next turn of the head, we go, that is so wicked, and it's so evil. There's a phrase of the ancients that goes like this. There's nothing worse than the best gone bad. There's nothing worse than the best gone bad. The reason why humanity, you know, you always hear people talking, you know, we're, we're destroying this planet, which there are things, you know, that we do, but some people take it so far and they say, you know, we should... We should just eradicate ourselves and let the planet be because we're so destructive. You know why humanity has the ability to be so destructive? Because we were intended to be so great. Our wickedness and our destruction speaks to our original greatness and our glory and our beauty. But the answer isn't to wipe ourselves off the earth. <laughs> the answer is how can the human machine be fixed? What's wrong with it and how does this happen? And so we have this, this misery and everything... It's beautiful and it's broken all at the same time. Now, the ancients also used another word. Um, when, when they spoke of kind of this whole project and what's going on, why it's out of joint and all this stuff, you, you've probably seen this word before. Shalom, right? Now, you hear that. What do you think of? People say, like, what does that mean? Yeah, peace oftentimes is, is kind of how we, uh, you know, it's said as a greeting, it's said as a, you know, wish, wishing peace on someone. But, but, but peace in, in English doesn't totally capture it. It is it, but, but, but we think of peace as in like, well, fortunately we're not fighting them anymore, so we're at peace. But see, shalom is like so much bigger than that. And it's almost this idea more like, I, I think this might kind of get out a little bit a little bit better is it's not just peace meaning like the absence of fighting shalom is this idea of, of of wholeness everything is rightly ordered do you remember a few weeks ago if you were here we talked about kind of under the under the idea of morality we said uh, there are three parts to morality it's like it's like ships out in the sea it's an armada of boats and he said you got to have to have everything working right a boat has to 
the steering gears have to be working right. It has to be rightly ordered, but then it also has to be rightly ordered with other boats. It can't be crashing into them or veering away. It has to be, you know, rightly ordered with them, and it has to be rightly ordered to the destination. Like, where's the whole armada going? That's that idea of everything is in harmony. Everything is rightly related to self, to others, and to the destination. It's this idea of perfection, wholeness. And see, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were out of shalom with God. And as a result of it, they were out of shalom with, with others, relationally. Remember, it's she did it. It's this blaming thing. Well, he did it. It's, it's this insecurity out of shalom with self. It says they, they, were, you know, they were embarrassed about who they were at that time. They're out of shalom with the world. It speaks of now everything, work's going to come, but now toil, meaning difficulty, is inserted. We talked a little bit about that last week. And so everything in the world, um, shalom is, is broken. Uh, Back in, the, back in the 90s, uh, early 1990s, th there was a movie. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. It's, uh, it's called The Grand Canyon. It's like Steve Martin, uh, Danny Glover, and Kevin Kline in it. And it was this really interesting film. And it, it starts out with this guy. He's, uh, uh, he's an attorney. I think he's like an immigration attorney or something like that. And he's driving down the street in his car. And uh, he's stuck in traffic. And he's just kind of... He's, upset and he's trying to get somewhere fast so he thinks well i'll take this kind of detour so he gets off and and he gets on and as he's driving off the main road he finds himself getting into these kind of progressively darker scarier streets you know that he finds himself in and, and he's kind of worried and, well of course you know the worst thing happened his car stalls and he's just and it's dark and it's creepy and you know he doesn't know who's around and this is in the day before cell phones you know so he can't just make a call right there from his car and so he's, he's worried. He gets out of his car. Well, he's able to find a phone. He makes it. He, he, he calls a tow truck. And he heads back to his car. And as he's waiting, th this band of thugs, you know, street guys come up. And, and, and they got the weapons and the chains. And, and they're looking at him like he's a meal. <laughs> you know, and he's just paranoid and freaking out. And just as they're about to, like, pounce on him and his car, the truck driver shows up. And, and the truck driver's kind of this big, strong, he's, he's kind, but, but he's kind of a big, burly you know, guy, and he gets out, and he starts hooking the truck up, and, and, and these thugs kind of start protesting, like, you're interrupting our meal, buddy, and, um, and the truck driver does something really interesting. He, he takes the leader of this gang, and he kind of he pulls him aside, you know, he takes him over, and he gives him a five-sentence explanation of shalom, and he says this, he goes, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait within his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is. Have you ever experienced that before? You know, like you get, you get passed up at a job by someone who's less qualified Maybe it's because they're buddy-buddy with the manager, and you just go, man, that's not, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Or maybe you have a child, a teenager, or a grown child, and it's like no matter what you do, no matter how much you reach out, no matter how open you are, it's just, it's just met with resentment, with rejection. They don't want any, any relationship with you at all. Or maybe it's a visit to the doctor, and, and, and you walk away knowing that your whole life's going to be different because of that piece of information. And, and, and what you thought 
were going to be the other, the rest of the days of your life may not be the way you thought they were going to be. Or maybe it's a person that, that you love so dearly and, and they've just walked away and, and you just feel so alone. Or maybe, maybe you just find yourself going into these seasons that, that you don't even know why they come, but just seasons of, of dark depression. And you wonder why, and, you, and you, doubt, you doubt your faith, you doubt your own value to your own life, and you ask, and you kind of say with, the, with this uh, tow, truck driver, everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. See, this is the result when shalom is vandalized, when the art has been defaced, and your experience of the world is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so at the end of this series, we're looking at this idea, kind of wrapping things up, looking at the question of wh what would it mean for humanity to be, and this is, this is on your, if you, if you picked up a bulletin on your way in, it's the image of God realized. What would it mean for your human nature to be realized? And by that I mean like reached its end. What was it meant for? What, what would it have looked like had it, had it been just realized? And everything that it was meant to be in our work, in our moral lives, in our relationship, in our thinking, and in living the good life, all these things. What would that look like for, sh for shalom to be the case? For there to be wholeness, just fully instantiated in you, in your life. And see, this is what our world seeks. Um, the pursuit of answering the question started long before the 1960s. But, but you, you either remember or, or you've read about there was this, this search, right? Search for the self, uh, self-realization um, with, with this question. And, you know, whether it was through the experience of uh, hallucinogenic drugs or, you know, transcendental meditation, uh, various forms of, you know, metaphysical, new thought, religious experience, they all had the same dead end. People reach us in that this isn't helping me self-realize. I'm not, I'm not realizing who I am anymore. And the scary part was this, this grand disillusionment. Because, because the hallucinogenic drugs and the you know, astral projection or transcendental meditation, whatever it might be, uh, gave the same end. They were, they were dead ends. They were hollow. They didn't give any answers. So why is this attempt to find oneself by oneself, a hopeless attempt. It can't be done. Every culture tries it. Um, let me use this picture, because I think this is just kind of a, a good picture. Any of you guys have these Russian nesting dolls? This, this is a penguin, which feels a little weird, because it's supposed to like represent us, but it's a penguin. So you go back to Genesis, and it speaks of you know, this idea of, of this shalom, or this wholeness, and saying, Everything is like whole, everything is, uh, has integrity. That's what integrity means, there's a wholeness to it. But after Genesis 3, we see this idea that the, when shalom is broken, it reverberates so far, it hits relationships, it hits our relationship with God, it hits the earth. But what the part we forget is the deepest point of reverberation is the self. And, and so what we have is we have a split self. And so as you think about this, we're kind of like, oh, that's not good. Sorry, Lisa. I borrowed these from Lisa. Hopefully she won't be mad. Thank you. 
And so as we look at this, it's like, okay, there are different, it's like there are different me's. And so, and so this is like the public Brent. This is the one that, you know, just someone passes me in the street and they see, you know, this is the Brent there. But, but then there's a deeper Brent too. This is the one that, you know, you guys know me. We have conversations and we talk and how's the weather, how the, you know, this is that Brent right there. But, you know, but there's also a deeper Brent. There's, there are all these Brents. This is the one that, this is the one that my, my closer friends know. The ones I'm in my small group with, the ones that I open up with, I talk about some of the challenges and difficulties in my life. They see some of my struggles. They might even pray for me. But, but then there's a deeper Brent. This is, this is the Brent that like my family knows, you know, the closest ones. They know, they know what I'm like. They, they know when I lose it, when I chase people down the streets because they ran over my sign and all that stuff. And, and, so, and so they see this Brent. But then, you know, but then there's a deeper one. And, and this is the one that I know of myself when I think of um, my own challenges, the things that, you know, I'm kind of scared to tell even maybe family about. Um, this is the one that I know that's me. And, you know, you kind of keep going and going. And uh, there, are, there are Brents that the reality is that I don't even know because I'm so fractured and I'm broken. And look at this, isn't that ridiculously tiny? Can you believe that? That's a penguin right there. It's painted. And there are all these different Brents. I'm a fractured person. And the scary part is, I'm pretty sure that one of them wants to assassinate me. I'm serious. I'm pretty sure one of them wants to take me out. One of them wants to really jack up my relationships. One of them tells me to think about myself more than anyone else. One of them tells me that, that I should just do what I want to when no one's looking because no one, no one else will really see. And so I experienced th th this lack of integrity. Remember in math, I was helping my son the other night with math, and I, I stinking hate math. I had to call my dad. My dad was a math teacher, so I had to call him like 20, I don't know, 30-some years ago, he's a math teacher, and he answers the questions real fast. So I'm, and I, I'm doing, it's like fractions into decimals, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know how to do this. But the one thing I remember from math is an integer. Remember what, is an, what an integer is? An integer is a number, correct me if I'm wrong, Dad, that can only be divided by itself, right? It has integrity. Have you ever felt like you're not an integer? Like, like, like you can so quickly be divided like you're this self with all these other selves, all these layers, and you're not even sure if all these layers are even for you. Sometimes you feel like, man, they're against me. One of them's trying to kill me and take me out in my life. This is what it means to be human. And this desire to, to find myself, it can't happen because I'm a split self. And it's my full self trying to find myself, but part of myself is trying to deceive me. I mean, isn't it crazy? We use phrases like self-deception. I mean, when you think about it, that's an absurd idea. It's only absurd if I were an integer, if I were a whole self. The fact that self-deception is possible means I'm like a Russian nesting doll. I am deeply fractured at the very heart level. Genesis 17, like we read earlier, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, beyond cure. Who can know it? See, the assumption is you can't even know it. 
You don't even know. Your, there are crevices of your own heart that you will never see. Dark places. You cannot fully trust yourself. That's why the Enlightenment Project didn't work. Because we can't reach all truth by using reason alone. Because it's touched by sin. It's fractured in the human person. See, Jesus had a really interesting answer for this. He was able to do what the London Zoo wasn't and what Deepak Chopra can't. He's able to say, let me help you make sense of this whole thing of being human and why all these attempted projects never work that you try. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is being questioned about deep parts of the human self, the parts that are broken, the ones that, you know, where, where does... You know, how do we understand the self? And, and his hearers were saying, well, here's what's wrong with the world is what you do, religious ceremony. Do you wash your hands, you know, before eating? Do you do, do you do these external things? And Jesus goes, man, you are missing it big time. And in uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 10, he calls the crowd to him and he said to them, listen and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles and later in verse 17, he says, Do you not see whatever goes into your mouth enters your stomach and goes out into the sewer? He's being a little graphic here. He says, But what comes out of the mouth, and this is really interesting. This is, this is his assessment of the human heart. And if he made the human heart, he probably knows what he's talking about. Um, he says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles, in verse 19, there's this scathing condition giving. He says, for out of the heart comes every evil intention. Murder, that's because that's it's in your heart. Adultery, that's because it's in your heart. Fornication, theft, that's, it's in your heart. False witness, meaning lying, slandering, gossip, the worst things you can imagine in the world, guess where they come from? They're not out there somewhere. They're not abstract entities floating around. They come from a will. And at the center of that will is a heart, and you've got one of them, and it's really broken because you're a fractured self. This is the problem. See, for, for our humanity to be realized, for, for, for shalom to happen again, Jesus says that we have to first realize our condition, our predicament. Um, it is a cancer of the heart. Listen to uh, the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a guy who was, who was put into the gulags in, in Russia. He was one of kind of the bourgeois, the elite, an intelligent person, and was uh, sort of thrown into one of the galleys, assumed that, 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 that he would die. And he saw... How, how wicked things are. And this is his assessment at the end. After seeing great wickedness from his government, he says this, though. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, like if it were just like the worst possible people, and they just did all the bad stuff, and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. He says, but the line of dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? <laughs> See, he realized, even though he saw great wickedness, it's in my heart too. I'm not exempt from this. As much as I recoil against the evil of others, rightly so, I am equally guilty of having a dirty, rotten heart. And I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel. 
Um, the story's told about G.K. Chesterton, who was a writer of this early last century, lived over in the United Kingdom, and a newspaper was, was trying to get responses from people in various different, you know, literature and the government and all these different industries in the culture, asking this one question, what's wrong with the world, right? Big question. This is kind of what Jesus' contemporaries were asking. What's wrong? Like, what, is it education? Is it poverty? Is it the government? Like, what's wrong with the world? And one of these many letters was sent to G.K. Chesterton. And he was this literary critic, a man of great words. I mean, his writing is just phenomenal. One of the best writers of this last century. And G.K. Chesterton got it. He wrote a very brief letter and sent it back. This is what, let me read the whole letter to you. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. He got this idea that Solzhenitsyn got. The line dividing good and evil runs through every human heart. What's wrong is not the education, it's not the government, it's not the wrong political system, it's not, it's not poverty. He says what's wrong is the human heart itself. There were some ancient rabbis who used to teach this idea. They would say, if all Israel... Now, remember this. Israel was always waiting for shalom. You know, waiting for... Uh, Rome to get off their back, all these other, God would come and he would establish kingdom, his rule and hearts and lives and all this stuff. And they said, um, if all Israel managed to keep the Torah, the Bible, if they obeyed it, if, if, if all Israel was able to keep the Torah, said for a single day, the age to come would begin. Would be here. The, the problem is, Jesus says, you can't do it. Because even if you do it, you know, on some outward level, if, if this Brent keeps the Torah, what about, what about this Brent? This Brent is having these malicious thoughts thinking, isn't it nice that I'm keeping the Torah? I hope people think well of me. Oh, man, I blew it. You know, I didn't do it. And so Jesus says, you, you'll never be able to do it. See, this is why moral improvement, you know, oftentimes religion goes to this one right here. Just be a better person. Be a moral person. Go to church, say your prayers, be kind, show justice. Are those important? Absolutely. Are they part of the law? Absolutely. Are they, are, are they the solution to what's wrong with the world? Never. Because the moment you think that's it, one of these other brands will start feeling really good about what you've done. That law will never get to your heart. That's Jesus' whole point when he talks about this idea that the heart is deceitfully wicked beyond cure who even knows it but this is the only good part too the solution that question who knows it is answered by i the lord test the heart i see that 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 deepest part of yours that you don't even know this one right here the center i commune with this part of your life that you're not even rationally conscious of i know the heart the lord says I know everything. You can't hide a single thing from me. So the question comes, okay, we're up a creek. This is a catch-22, <laughs> right? God calls us to wholeness, but our heart's broken, so I can't even want wholeness fully. I mean, part one of the Brents can want wholeness, but there's one of these Brents that doesn't even want it. So what do we do? What's the solution? 
Well, that same book, Jeremiah, where God said the heart is deceitful, look at beyond care, there's you know, nothing. Jeremiah chapter 31, a little later on, here's the key. God gives the skeleton key, the answer to it all. He says, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant they broke, he reminds them because of this, they couldn't keep it. Though I was their husband, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now listen to the nature of this covenant. You guys, this is the solution. This is how it can work. He says in verse 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord for they shall know me, they will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let me get something. One of the things I've been excited about doing here in this series, um, fortunately, if David Clack, our artist who gave us the $2,900 Z clay on canvas painting. I'm sure he's been hopefully not crying himself to sleep every single night um, as we've been abusing it and vandalizing it. See, there's this great reality in Scripture that says one day God's going to do something phenomenal, something that with all the education and all the progression, all the technology, all the work, all the moral law-keeping, can never do it. God's going to do something. I'm not sure if that's going to stay up there. If that falls, tell Dave I didn't do it. In the book of Revelation, there's this really, really cool image. He's talking about in eternity the way that God's going to do this whole shalom thing. I love the Bible because it uses pictures. It uses concrete images that we can kind of get our mind around. In Revelation chapter 2, we read this. <clears throat> Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's God's people. That's us. To everyone who conquers. This is this idea that everyone who is now, of course, we're, we're conquerors because we are in the one who is the conqueror, Christ. Everyone who is in Christ, he is saying, he says, look, this is so cool. I will give some of the hidden manna. This is an Old Testament reference. But listen, listen to this next part. And I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's this, now, think about this. In the, throughout the Bible, God comes to Abram. Remember what he does? He calls Abram, Abraham. He changes his name, Sarai, to Sarah. Uh, you know, all along, you know, Peter. Remember, he changes, he changes his name. 
a name change has to do with who you're going to be, your identity. And it's not just what you're going to do, that, that flows out of it, but it's essentially, I'm going to change who you are in your heart. A name change has to do with identity. And in Revelation 2, he says, when this happens, when shalom happens, here's, how, here's what it's going to look like. And he uses this kind of literalistic, you know, hard concrete image. He goes, I'm going to give you a stone, and it's going to have a new name on it. And no one's going to know the name except you and me. It's a secret between us. And your whole nature, your whole identity, it's going to be like this. All those parts that for years as you were at work, as you were in relationship with others, those moments you had alone where you lacked integrity, you didn't feel like an integer, you kind of felt like a fractured self, you kind of wondered what was wrong with you, why you couldn't be like you thought everyone else was whole. And he says, I'm going to give you a new name. And it's going, to be, it's going to be this shalom wholeness thing. You're going to be perfectly oriented and not fractured because you'll be rightly oriented to me. I'm going to make you new. All that stuff that was so broken and dirty and rotten and you couldn't eat, even, even your best attempts had hints of, of this sort of self-promotion in it. It's going to be gone. And all that original design, that you caught hints of, you know, you catch hints of, of, of greatness in yourself. You, you catch hints of greatness in your spouse, in your friends, in your parents, in your kids. But then, like, it goes away so fast because they screw it up. He goes, It'll, all that other stuff will just fall off. And you'll be this beautiful masterpiece that you were designed to be. And you will be a being. There's this great, there's this great line by C.S. Lewis. He says, if you could see like the most weak, goofy person that you can think of in the world who you're just bugged by and you think is kind of a, just a dork. He said, if you could see that person in their glorified state, he said, you'd be tempted to worship them. Remember how people responded to angels in the Bible? They'd see an angel, they'd fall down and worship, and they'd go, no, 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 no. Our glory, Scripture says, is going to be more expansive than an angelic being. Every single one of us. And Lewis goes on to say, every conversation you have with someone is pushing them one direction or another. So he says, be really careful about your conversations, about your emails, your phone calls, what you do. And the key is that if my desires are to change, if I can't even fully desire God right, but if I want to do it, if I want to desire the greatest good, God has to change my desires. He has to make me a whole being. And that's what's so cool about being human, you guys. Because we're made in the image of God, because we're image bearers, see, we start out searching for truth, for myself. But what we find out is we're discovered. <laughs> I start out looking for something. I'm always looking for something. But in the end, what I find is I'm found by someone. And that's the key. That's what it means to be fully human. And God says, let me give you the perfect picture of it. And in the second person of the Trinity, he steps into this world. 
in flesh, the incarnation, the God-man, fully God, fully man, and he shows us a glimpse, a picture of what it will be like to be fully human. A person who is fully obedient to the Father in every single way, who is, who is a perfect integer, who is glorious and grand and yet can serve anyone. And he goes, that's a glimpse. Just wait. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we pray to you because you are the only one who can transform that, that, that innermost part of who we are, what, what we call our desires, uh, our, our will, which so easily bends toward various directions. You can transform uh, motives and intentions. Basically, you can transform the heart. And Father, we recognize that, that we we are fractured beings. We are not integers. But God, that is our dream. And it is, man, it's a hope beyond hope that, that you tell us that we can be that someday, not on our own steam, but because you will come in and make us new and transform us. And you're doing that slowly now, making us more Christ-like. God, that is our hope. And for those of us who, who maybe would sit out here and if we were really honest, we'd say, you know, I, honestly, I don't even long for that that much. God, I pray that that person would long to long for that. That you would put a deep desire in their heart to be one who is shaped and fashioned and formed into the image of Christ. Thank you that you have such a high calling on our lives, God, that you have made us image bearers in your world to bring your creative, redemptive love to a world that is so broken. And yet you use us who are broken ourselves. That's grace. We love you for that, Father. And we say, like, like the words of that, that song that we sang earlier, Lord, I need you. Wow, there is no more anthem that is true for us when we recognize how deeply sinful we are, that we need you. And we thank you that even though we are more sinful and miserable and broken than we ever feared believed, that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Thank you for that, God. We love you. Thanks for this time. Apply these truths to our lives. God, go with us this evening into our workplaces tomorrow and our relationships and transform starting with our hearts. In Jesus' powerful name, who is our king and he's our only hope, we pray. And we all sit together. Amen. Amen. You guys, thanks so much for being here for this series. I hope this has been something that has been meaningful to you guys. I know I've been challenged by it in a lot of ways. Um, I'd like to invite our prayer team to come forward. If you would like prayer, we consider it a real privilege just to be able to spend a few minutes with you in, in prayer. Otherwise, hang out. You guys, we've got like, we've got, if you've got kids, you've got six minutes before you have to go pick them up. So um, grab some decaf coffee and snacks. I saw something like a fig bar on, on the that's like homemade fig bar kind of stuff, not Fig Newtons, homemade fig bar or something like that. 